Hi, my name's Jason Chen. Hi, it's Danelle Sedley here. I'm Ra Vincent, and this is the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Special episode time. Special episode. Very exciting special episode about a very awesome movie that I think everyone needs to go see. It's the Jojo Rabbit special episode. So you'll be asking yourself, did you interview the cinematographer? Did you interview the cinematographer? I did not. What? Not well, yet. You know what? We don't always interview the cinematographer. It's true. Not always. Uh, but we did interview uh, three key creative collaborators. Oh, and, and who, who was that? Our producer, Alana Cody, and I went uh, to the very fancy Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills. Fa, fa, fa. I feel like such a poser walking into that place. <laughs> were, were you dressed how, how you were dressed right now in sort of like the baseball jersey shirt? More or less, Black yeah. jeans, yeah. Yeah, okay. more or less the same way. So we uh, set up in uh, like a little conference room off of a bar area. So uh, you'll... The, background the, noise. There's a little bit of background noise. You'll hear, uh, you know, blenders and stuff every now and then. Mm. Uh, but we interviewed three different people in this order. Jason Chen, who's the VFX supervisor, and I don't know how old he is, but I'm assuming he's tops 28. Wow. Danielle Satherly, who is the uh, makeup designer, one of the makeup people from uh, like The Hobbit and a bunch of other stuff. Almost all these people are... Uh, these are A+. Plus. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the production designer, Rob Vincent, who's a fascinating, fascinating person. And I realized... While I was talking to them, I've never been a VFX supervisor like for somebody else, but I've done VFX for my own stuff. But I have been a makeup artist and I have been a production designer. And I, you were the perfect person to I, do these interviews. I did mention to Danielle that I had been a makeup artist. I, I didn't really say anything to Ra about me being a production designer because I feel like an enormous poser as the production <laughs> designer of the Blair Witch Project because I'm not really a production designer. Uh, well, that's not true. Someone had to make some stick figures. It was you. Some, some, some motherfucker had to tie (laughs) some sticks together and that was me. Um, but yeah, we, we get a really good sense of kind of the collaborative atmosphere that, uh, Taika Waititi, uh, creates on his film, Jojo Rabbit. And I'm not just saying this, we, we, we got to go to a pre-screening of Jojo Rabbit and I would say it's probably my favorite film I've seen this year. Whoa, that is that's a bold statement. It's uh, I, I say to a few of the interview subjects. I mean, to me, it's like it's it's like a new Kurt Vonnegut story almost, where it it's like a World War II story that is simultaneously hilariously weird and whimsical and farcical, and then swings to tragedy on a dime. And of course, it does because it's like in a small village at the end of World War II when the Germans are about to lose, and it's just a perfect kind of satirical. Dark, funny children's story, sort of that. I, I, I don't know. It, it really, uh, it moved me a lot, and I, I can't wait to see it again. And it's gorgeous. Did, did you flash back at all to Life Is Beautiful, Roberto Benigni, sort of like? Uh... I, I didn't. Uh, I don't think it's similar to that because oh, okay. uh, Life Is Beautiful is about people in a concentration camp. It's about the Jews. And this is about the Germans and mm. about a little kid who idolizes Adolf Hitler at the beginning. And then I, don't, I really don't want to say what else happens, right. except, then, then. except for that. Uh, if you've seen a single trailer, Ta- Taika Waititi, the director, plays Adolf Hitler as this guy's imaginary friend. This little kid has an imaginary friend who is Adolf Hitler. 
Well, I, I will tell you that it's an old it's an old trope in Hollywood that if you want to win an Academy Award, you 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 bring up World War Two. So what what the, did they do before World War Two? I, I don't know, but that seems to be the thing. It's like when someone wants to win an, an Academy Award, it's got to be a, a story about I, the Nazis. So. I, uh, maybe, maybe. Um, also, uh, by the way, amazing performances from uh, Sam Rockwell and Scarlett Johansson. That's an incredible cast. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, the, that's, the cast is amazing. The kid, uh, I forget his name. Uh, and it's out now, at least in L.A. You can go see uh, this, I think I it opens this Friday. Oh, okay. Oh, well, by uh, the time you hear this this podcast, it, it will be out. Yeah, yeah. Definitely uh, check out Jojo Rabbit if you want to know the kind of movie I think is awesome. Hey, uh, Ben, um, before we, we hop into that, let's do a, just a tiny bit of housekeeping. We have some wonderful new five-star reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts. And oh, also, sweet. I will tell you that if you type in Apple Podcast and Cinematography, uh, the number one result is the Cinematography Podcast. We are now at the top of Google for with the, that search term, which is pretty awesome. In your face, other cinematography-related podcasts. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not going to say It's a competition it, and it, we're winning. Uh, no, I just, but hey, uh, we're usually, we're on the first page, but now we are also dominating at the top, which is kind of cool. Well, so, okay, but, I appreciate it and I will, uh, I'll, I'll be happy about that as long as it lasts. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to give a, a huge uh, thank you and shout out to, uh, WG Messi, who said, great pod, exclamation point, Ilya Friedman rocks, and so does this podcast. Keep them coming. Wow, Sweet. You do like, rock, Ilya. Oh, thanks. I got, I got a nice shout out. And I got to say, I'm very happy of the current uh, episode that you might have heard right before this one, which is uh, Benoit. Uh, Benoit, that, that that might be one of my, I think that's my best interview so far. So there you go. Uh, okay. Uh, we got a great one here from Bill Bixby's Ugly Brother, is uh, who, who wrote this. Great podcast, exclamation point. So nice to have interviews that feel unlimited and exciting. Really fun and lots of valuable information. Thank you. Thank you, Bill Bixby's ugly brother. That, you're, that's... you're welcome. And you should give yourself more credit. I think you're way more handsome than Bill Bixby. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially now. Because he died. You you want to know when Bill Bixby died? April 22nd, 1994. Is that your birthday? That's my birthday. Yeah. It's funny that you knew that. Yeah. So. <laughs> you know who else died that day? Richard Nixon. Go on. Wow. Okay. You, you keep track of everyone who dies on your birthday, huh? No, I just it just kind of hit me that like, wow, it must suck if you're Bill Bixby today because everyone's going to remember that the president, uh, like the disgraced ex-president uh, died on the same day you died. Hey, Ben, I think this is enough uh, housekeeping, but uh, let's let's ask our listeners who are probably bored or may have skipped past this whole part here about us grandstanding. Uh, you know, hey, we got some some nice reviews and we uh, uh, were at the top of Google, but uh, we, we want a little call to action here. We want to ask people, uh, give our Instagram account some love, if you don't mind. Follow us there. I think we're approaching 300. Maybe we've passed 300 followers. But yeah, if you if you wouldn't mind, we we basically give you little teasers of all of our episodes and i think we're going to figure out a way to put on instagram tv the podcast we're working on that right now so if you if you wouldn't mind please uh follow us on on instagram we'd appreciate it all right uh ben you want to get to the interview yeah without further ado here are three awesome people from jojo rabbit maybe one day we'll get the dp too or taika or taika the cinematography podcast interview I am recording, and Great. I'm here at the extremely fancy Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills in a 
in a delightful uh, dining something. I don't know. There's a lot of wine bottles. Next to a wine wall. It, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of wine. It feels very <laughs> fancy. Uh, we're here with Jason Chen, the visual effects supervisor on Jojo Rabbit. Uh, congratulations on the movie. It's an amazing film. Thank you. So I kind of wanted to start with a little bit of your background. You know, we understand that you started working around age 17, if I'm That's not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah. So, um, are you the next David Fincher? You can tell me. <laughs> no. So I was lucky enough at, at an early age to have gone to several film programs uh, during the summer in between my junior and senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. And one of the film programs at New York Film Academy, I had met an actress and she asked me after we had finished if I wanted to join her on this little project for six weeks. And I said, whatever it is, I will do it. I don't care. So I moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And it turned out to be the initial Tintin camera test. Oh, wow. So my first day on the job going into this indescript building in Playa Vista where Howard Hughes built a Spruce Goose, I sit there and all of a sudden Spielberg and Peter Jackson walk into the building. Oh, this little project. Yeah, this little project and my jaw hits the floor. And one of my jobs um, for that film, the initial jobs, was, of course, getting coffee, making runs, um, doing whatever, painting, literally painting fire lines in the stage. How how does Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson take their coffee? Just want to know. Spielberg loves an extra hot chai tea latte. Nice. And Peter... I forget, actually. Sorry, Peter. Um, oh, <laughs> Doghouse. I know, I know. But yeah, working my way up from the ground up has always been, working hard um, has been kind of what I always pride myself on. Mm-hmm. And so what happened after those initial six weeks, my job was to take care of the people at Weta Digital. You know, it's such an amazing uh, visual effects house that have broken down so many um, visual you know, visual storytelling uh, walls and are able to accomplish a lot of really, truly great performances. So after that initial job, I got a call. I finished up high school, finished school. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then I, um, I got back and uh, I got a call from Hannah over at Weta. And she's like, look, we have this other project. It's called Production 8, Project 880. And once again, I said, yes, I'll move down there, whatever. It's only six weeks. And I get down there and it turns out to be Avatar. Wow. And um, six weeks turned into six months. Six months turned into a year. A year turned into four years. Wow. So that was initially my college experience, learning on the bleeding edge of technology, um, getting to interact with Jim Cameron, um, being surrounded by great producers such as John Landau. And really, it was such an amazing experience because no one had ever done what we had done at that point. Uh, to the level that we uh, we did. So you walked out of there um, at the age of 22, knowing, <laughs> being one of p- probably one of 100 people that only knew this process. Wow. And then later on, it just kind of, um, every, every project after that kind of went hand in hand from um, Sean Levy's Real Steel, using virtual production technologies there, and really collaborating with the cinematographers and cameramen, um, even going into J.J. Abrams' world of Star Trek Into Darkness and Star Trek Beyond, uh, I went into a field of onset data wrangling, which for specifically for visual effects. So I have such a, an appreciation for all my camera brothers that I've met throughout the years because we have to work hand in hand. And I've learned so much on each project from going from the extreme technical digital side of shooting on a show like Real Steel where we were 
using every single tool in the toolbox to something um, like shooting on a JJ movie where it's film-based and you had to learn a whole new set of tools and shooting on uh, anamorphic primes that have been around since uh, Ben-Hur days. Like wow. it's been, I've, I have relationships with these lenses because I've seen them from show <laughs> to show. And um, so in saying that, once uh, we got into the world of JoJo, JoJo was actually one of the smaller projects that I worked on. So it came with its whole new challenges. But how long have you been uh, VFX supervising specifically? So I've only been VFX supervising for we in in film we we judge our lives by the number the different types of projects. So yeah. it was actually on the what we do in the shadows pilot that I was doing the uh, visual effects supervision on that. So mm-hmm. fairly recently, but uh, JoJo would have been my thirty fifth feature in that span of time um, and uh, my first dive into a smaller kind of production and um, but taking all those experiences from the larger scale and custom fitting it to provide all the same tools that we're used to into this this sandbox uh, you know you're talking about you know with JJ Abrams working with the anamorphic lenses mm-hmm. and stuff like that talk about how cinematography and cinematographers how how much do you work kind of fist in glove with cinematographers right if you look at, so in a JJ sense, um, Roger Guyette is the visual effects supervisor, mm. also the second unit director for JJ on most all his projects. And Dan Mindel is the cinematographer. Dan has such a great relationship with Roger that it's kind of like, it's very, very similar to the relationship that we have on this movie with you know myself, Mihai, Ra, our production designer. Um, and Taika, and, and mm-hmm. even Maya's our costume designer too. There's just that friendliness. There's no first day jitters of going on to a new shoot. There's that comfort level, and we talk all the time. In prep, we talked every single day. There were no closed doors. Ra and I had, Ra, Mihai, and I had offices all on the same level within 20 steps apart. And every single time anybody had a question, we would just, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Should we bring it up to Tyke in the next go around? Yeah, sure. And it's a true collaboration. I mean, anything that's visual, I, there's always the respect that you must give um, people to their own departments, but also be able to provide tools that can help the process along for the best best shot possible. Can you, can you give us like a relatively spoiler free, because mm-hmm. this is probably going to go out before the movie is sure. in wide release, uh, a relatively spoiler free example right. of how you work with the cinematographer and how you bring your collaboration specifically to, you know, I, I don't know if it's it, it also could be art direction or, sure. or, or set design or whatever. Like, is it is it more about set extensions or whatever? Because again, in a movie like Jojo Rabbit, actually not again, because we spoke about this before we started right. rolling. It's a movie that doesn't announce the visual effects no. as much as like Thor Ragnarok or totally. something like that. Right. So uh, how does the collaboration work between the two of you? So there's one scene in the movie where um, our main characters, Jojo and Elsa, are sitting on a rooftop and they're just having a conversation together. And it was really, truly, it was written one way in the script where Jojo and Elsa are talking and they're overlooking a city that's being bombed. And the true challenge there, because what they were speaking about was so important and almost romantic in a way, it, that was one of the earliest shots that Mihai, Ra, and I, Ra, our production designer, sat in a room and we were thinking to each other, okay, how can we help 
tell this story in a romantic way. Taika's given us these guidelines, and let's see what we can figure out together and that fall within uh, Taika's vision. So one of my favorite shots in the movie is this shot in particular where it's just a slow push in on a dolly, and uh, Elsa and Jojo are speaking on the, while overlooking what's, ha- what's happening in front of them, which is a bombing run over a city. Generally, if you just pushed into them, you wouldn't be able to get the sense of what is happening, and you you would forget that what they're actually looking at is truly hor- horrifying. Mm-hmm. So what we all came up with was we had a specific set piece that was just the rooftop and the window, and what we all talked about and Taika loved was we added a piece of textured glass above Jojo and Elsa so that when Mihai would launch his interactive lights for the flashes of the bombs going off in the distance, we could see the little specular highlights in the glass Mm -hmm. to make it more like a dreamlike scene. But in reality, what that reflection is, is a reminder that people are dying in front of them. Yeah. So this comes at a critical point in the movie where it's just so important to thread that line between reality and where Jojo's perspective is in this fantastical world. So that was truly a collaboration. Mihai, Ra, Taika and I just sat there early on, picked out a lens and and figured out a dolly move. What was going to be the most um, expressive of this and how everyone was going to come to the table and contribute to this one very important shot. So we talked about this at nauseum for some, something so simple, but it was ultimately I feel is my favorite and most important shot in the movie. Interesting. Um, oh, and it's interesting hearing you talk about it because I remember the shot in right. the movie and I remember it being like a really intimate moment. Yeah. And honestly, the magic trick of this movie, uh, which I told you before, reminds me of a lot of Kurt Vonnegut novels, yeah. is, is that it... It makes something personal while something horrendous is happening right. just just beyond our field of vision or even in our field of vision. Right. But it's like deeply personal and sometimes absurd, sometimes funny, right. sometimes tragic. But like we're we're in with these people. Right. What was the like the general approach to to VFX? I mean, uh, well, even before we get into that, w- would you say VF, uh, uh, Jojo Rabbit is the biggest project you've VFX supervised where you were the you were the boss? Yes, absolutely. I mean, on the other projects like the. Um, the Star Treks and the uh, Thor Ragnaroks. Um, my specific job was in in project management and mm-hmm. su- supervision of that. So building the teams and really managing the set is what I grew up doing, and and just being in the field is the important thing that I always kind of come back to. And interacting with crew and interacting with our camera departments. And I'm telling, I'm not, I'm not fibbing at all or over exaggerating <laughs> uh camera department and vfx the, m- the more solid that relationship is the better the outcome well and it's they're they're drawing uh closer together these days too. totally you know with uh you know pre previs and stuff like that yeah. i recently saw went to a seminar where they were showing um uh, unreal engine and yep. y- using that stuff live on set absolutely um were there any kind of like uh I, I don't want to get too in the weeds with sure. so- software and stuff, but were there any consumer-facing products that you find yourself using a lot? Totally. There was this one shot in the movie that was one of our biggest shots that we were having a hard time conceiving that I used a, a software called Shot Pro, and it's an app that you can download on your iPad or mm-hmm. even your computer. And we literally pre that shot. And initially it was going to be this huge, highly visual, visual effects-driven shot. But because 
Mihai and I sat there and based off Taika's storyboards, we're able to, sh to frame it up in this very video game centric way, uh, design characters in it. And we created a previs for that shot that we were able to present to all departments. And it went from being a highly CG shot to actually mostly in camera, where we were able to block out the paths of the characters. We were able to say, okay, now a tank comes in and really hone in timing and while keeping everyone safe, of course, um, but it's because of those simple tools that we did. We're using that big cinema mentality to bring it down into a very smart and thought out way to sell, help save costs at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, especially when, you know, we, we all come from a big, um, big projects in the past where we're trying to bring that same kind of aesthetic and feel to this project. Like, what are the kinds of things in Jojo Rabbit that I think audiences would be most surprised to learn were visual effects driven? Um, there was a, a scene where Jojo is walking through the square, and that was originally shot in the summertime. And in the movie, um, all this, this sequence, which is probably about anywhere five, ten minutes, uh, we made it all winter to help tie in because we went back to reshoot a uh, few things in early part of the year uh, which is when it was uh, winter in Prague um, so trying to find that balance um, <laughs> so yeah a lot of invisible visual effects were used throughout the movie um, How, and, and to me this is something that's uh, and I've done my own dicking around mm -hmm. in After Effects and stuff over the years and uh, I'm always curious like What's the internal mechanism for you when you're looking at something and you're like, no, that like, it, I mean, if it's Thor Ragnarok, then, sure. then it's allowed to look a little more expressionistic or whatever. But like, how do you how do you gauge something like that, especially in something like Jojo Rabbit, right. where it all has to look completely real? So we actually my my whole thing was that we because we wanted to make everything it needed to be seamless for the story to be seamless. Mm -hmm. um, we brought out all the tools that we would normally have on a big budget movie. We brought out Clear Angle Studios, which is a LiDAR scanning company that we've, I've worked on five or six shows with and have known their company for years. So LiDAR, that's to Light, do like a 3D yes. scan of So of literally scene. it's yeah taking a scanner, 3D scanning all the environments, having a photographer come out and texture shoot all the buildings. So our set extensions would actually be in the real light at the real time of day. Um, and we would use everything um, as specifically as we could. We lens mapped all our lenses, which is essentially shooting a checkerboard with all the different anamorphic lenses and figuring out the distortion because each lens has its own set of distortion. We made sure that we captured every single lens to really make it have that same feel for a bigger, predominantly visual effects-driven shot. Mm -hmm. um, so by bringing all those tools to the table, you can never get too much reference, as I call it. I always tell the vendors that come on to one of the shows um, that I'm working on is you'll be extremely, you'll be nauseatingly happy with the amount of data that I'm going to give you. <laughs> because at the end of the day, nothing is as good as reference from sitting there in the day. Because you have to think about it. There's so much disconnect from the people that are doing the work to what is happening on set. There are only so many questions that can be answered um, by the people that are on set, but it's going out to people worldwide, visual effects artists. So it's my job specifically and the team that we have brought on board to represent everything that every single light that goes into place really capture the essence of 
what Mihai's look is for the project, Raw's production design, and also Taika's vision overall. So, you know, capturing everything uh, when you're shooting is imperative in my, in my mind. I don't know if you necessarily would have an answer for this because mm-hmm. I feel like you're actually it, it, it does sound like you would um, the movie kind of plays a weird hat trick in that it vacillates wildly from something that approaches farce in tone to mm-hmm. something that approaches tragedy and kind of every every note in between is there something about the way that you architected the look of, of what you were doing to steer into any of those tones or feelings or were there conversations you were in? And I don't know if that's something that would have, that would affect VFX, but I do feel like VFX has such an impact on tone in this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, to be honest, it's, it's really the conversations that Mihai, Maya's, Ra initially had about color scheme, mm-hmm. about production design, about lensing in general, about the tests that we did. Um, that really set the tone and and of course Taika's need and want to drive this in a very realistic tone but also come into a color palette that is not necessarily shown for World War II movies yeah. if you, the one thing that you will notice is that this movie is very vibrant and that was intentional because at the end of the war um, people weren't all you know, dressed depressingly or anything. They were actually dressed to their nines because they thought they were going to die the next day. It is actually insane. Um, And as extreme as the movie is, a lot of the ridiculous things that you guys will see in the movie are based in reality. Mm -hmm. Some of the lines, a lot of things. Because it was that ridiculous. So it was actually quite simple for me coming in to just make sure that that tone and aesthetic is driven into the set extensions, make sure that we have smaller multicolored buildings in the background and and follow fall into that general aesthetic that was set up by Taika. Well, and, and I also kind of wondered if, if there was a temptation from an artistic impulse. Right. Like there's a scene in the movie with a butterfly that I assume mm-hmm. is CGI, but like... Were there moments where, because moments like that have kind of a Guillermo del Toro-ness to them Mm -hmm. almost, and I I wondered if there was like a temptation to make those more expressionistic or vibrant, and and did you temper that, or did you steer into that? So the question of the butterfly, we, Ra and I, went to, uh, did a deep dive. We looked up 400 different variations and species of butterfly that are native to Germany at that specific time in winter um, and really went through and went through design and look and narrowed it down. And we also, you know, initial conversations with Taika, we were even like, okay, what if we do something super extreme where you have um, German colors that are on the wings of the butterfly? <laughs> and you, you have to go extreme to come back to what is really essential in the movie. So at the end of the day, we wanted, because it was such an important part of the movie, um, we stuck within what was realistic in that day and keeping it within that realm of reality. Mm-hmm. So there was always a temptation to go far, but we always went there, but you always have to kind of dial it back and look at the, take a step back and look at the movie from a global perspective. Or even like explosions. Was there ever mm-hmm. an, a, a, an instinct to be like, let's make this explosion huge? Yes, there definitely was. And there was even a point in a montage in a battle where we were even playing with color tones and, and making the explosions hyper green and pink and red. But, and we, we did a bunch of concept art for that. 
but at the end of the day, we all sat back and we really had to under remember that no, we can't. We have to make sure that we do not sugarcoat what happened in reality. Mm-hmm. So we did those exercises, but once again, stepping back and looking at the entire movie and the message of the movie, we thought it was the best thing to bring it back, remember remember our message, and continue with that 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 idea. But it's very important to go through those creative steps to get to know where you you can't you can't get somewhere uh, unless you've had the experience along the way. So yeah, it's uh, it's pretty pretty interesting. So uh, in Thor Ragnarok, which mm. you worked on, um, you know, you were able to go to, you know, the polar opposite of this. Like, it's not a realistic film. It's it's, right. it's hyper fantasy. Talk about kind of the, I guess, the contrast between working on something like that versus working on something like Jojo Rabbit. So on, th- on Ragnarok, um, it was really the supervisor on that, Jake Morrison. And once again, the collaboration between Brad Winderbaum, who's the executive creative producer on that, and Ra. Uh, Rob Vincent, who's the same production designer on JoJo, and Dan Henna, and just Marvel as a whole, they really give the creatives a the ability to just go full blown, and and it really shows. And yes, it's it's um, it's extremely colorful, and and there's a lot of tones that mimic what we did in Ragnarok in in JoJo as well, in terms of the color palette and you know the ideas that kind of went forth that we followed up on and as you can see from the trailers too it's a different feeling movie so it's all relative even though the scales are completely different but i think what the biggest thing that all these projects do have in common is that they're taika's vision and mm-hmm. you can sense that through and throughout from not just on the final product but day one of shoot day one of prep all the way through to final delivery they are taika projects um, that have his sensibility that have his Mindset and his childlike sensibility, but the ability also to deliver gut punches when they need to. Um, you know, because we always talk to cinematographers, and we're we're drilling down to like, how do you take a pile of pages and turn them into imagery? Sure. How do you look at a at a at a brand new script and start thinking about what's what's going to be a visual effect, or what right. what can you creatively add to the process? Right. Well, um, like everything, the the script is a blueprint. It is there are words on a page. And it's all kind of the relationships that you do have knowing Taika's sensibility and um, us also being friends at the end of the day is is really pays a big part of that. So I can read through a script and I'll flag, oh, exterior wide establishing. I can assume maybe that's a set extension knowing that we're shooting in Prague and knowing that we'll need to add some, some Nazi banners and also having good communication with our DP, with the production designer to figure out what is going to be there. So I'll do an initial pass flagging anything that I think will need enhancement. For example, in the trailer, when uh, Yorkie throws a knife at the tree and it ricochets back, uh, we know that we can't actually do that. So that's a, <laughs> that's a tick box. Um, but then there are also very creative moments like Jojo and Elsa on the rooftop that Taika's really set what it is. And then now it's uh, up to us to kind of collaborate and, and figure out what that's going to be. So we'll flag question marks. It's like, oh, maybe we can enhance this. Maybe mm-hmm. we can do this and, and really get an idea. But once again, all comes back to communication between departments, which is really great. 
Um, I really only have a, one other question, and that's for filmmakers who are starting out today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe not with you know the resources of a studio or whatever. Sure. What are the things that they can look to visual effects to help them accomplish today? Right. I mean, to be honest, I think in this day and age, there's such a wealth of knowledge. I'm a self-taught visual effects person. I went in and and looked at YouTube videos and how to. Uh, work after effects and mm-hmm. learned compositing which, which um, were your favorite like what what was it was a video co-pilot you know me, me too <laughs> it's very it's i want to get andrew kramer on it, here it's so great bad. Yeah. yeah no 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 um all of andrew's stuff is really informative um really breaks it down in a kind of lego building block sensibility and that's uh and to be honest to this day and age i still use after effects on set doing rough temp comps getting uh, feeds from video playback and just comping them right then and there mm-hmm. so that people can see the result of the way it's shot better. Um, people can see the results immediately after you shoot it correctly. Yeah. Because if you shoot it correctly, the visual effects come very become very straightforward and easy to do. And just like anyone else, like Mihai and, and our conversations of, okay, Mihai, I need a clean plate for this, clean plate for, for that. It was that that kind of communication between camera department and visual effects is so important because um, getting those simple clean plates, you know, save a lot of time and money. Yeah, to this day and age, I still use After Effects all the time. And, you know, what I would say to upcoming filmmakers is that there's so many tools out there that are free, like DaVinci Resolve is free. You can download it right now. I know. And it... It has everything you need, and it's crazy because there's such an, an amounting uh, wealth of knowledge online that you can really become an expert at something uh, if you just put in the time. And that's the big thing: is always commitment is key in this industry, you know. And that is one of the things that you learn from any movie, from TV shows to huge hundred million dollar plus movies. Commitment is key. And you need to make sure that you follow through. If there's there's going to be uh, upcoming jobs right at the tail end of a shoot, finish your job. There will always be more jobs around the corner, you know. But also work hard and do and try to learn everybody else's craft as well, because you are in an industry that a million people would love to be where we are right now. Mm-hmm. And um, you are working with some of the most creative people in the world, because I think film in general is a combination of all different art forms from from music to costume design to architecture and to uh, lensing and photography and lighting it's really beautiful and now we're bringing it's one of the few art forms that is able to bring in computers and and technology into an otherwise classical uh, art form of filmmaking so it's really the best of all worlds so learn about all your departments is key (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Is there any place online where people can uh, find your work? Actually, I, I just kind of go from from job to job and mm-hmm. really have not consolidated any of my work <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> um, it's to, I mean, the, the only thing is probably you could just IMDB and just see the previous projects. But um, aside from that, I kind of just uh, keep on chugging forward. And, yeah, don't really... <laughs> don't, <laughs> I like to keep a low profile. <laughs> well, cool. Well, it's, yeah. it's great to meet you, and uh, thank you for coming on the podcast, and congratulations on JoJo Rabbit. Thank it's, you so it's much. It's a masterpiece. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. 
So we're we're here uh, again at the uh, at a, a really fancy uh, conference restaurant area in the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills with Donnell Satherly, who is makeup and hair on Jojo Rabbit. And congratulations again on on this movie. It's an amazing accomplishment. Well, it's so exciting to hear. Uh, Thanks yeah, no, for having me. No, no, it's lovely to be here. So uh, we primarily talk about creative process here, mm. and we're generally talking about cinematography, obviously, because mm. we're the cinematography podcast. But let me kind of start with your creative process mm. when you're handed a script what are the things you're looking for how do you what do you go about breaking down like maybe even before you meet with the director or before you're really in into the job hmm. okay so uh, I, I I'll, I'll just do one pass just to get a feel for it of mm. course just overall not not really paying you know not taking notes not not paying too much attention to anything too specific just getting a general feel for it mm-hmm. then of course I'll do a pass pretty quickly looking at and highlighting anything that I see that's going to be pertaining to me really you know whether there's prosthetic elements time passing so potential kind of hair lengths wigs yeah yeah just basically kind of looking for any character points that are that are are written into the script that will obviously be fleshed out when I have my meeting with the director and and so you know kind of walk through the process on Jojo Rabbit of like mm. you know because t- to me it's a movie that walks this line between like farce and tragedy mm. And, and, mm. and really hits a lot of notes mm. but you have some things in there some some makeup effects that mm. are pretty specific you know mm. you've got a kid who's who's wearing a prosthetic mm. for a lot of the movie mm. like how do you decide how far to go with mm. that kind of stuff mm. that's a good point so we started I, I was prepping from New Zealand to begin with, mm-hmm. um, so I, I think I, I did, you know, I was I was in New Zealand and I only flew out to Prague maybe three weeks before shoot. So from there, I talked to Taika about how he saw the scar scarification, um, and he made it quite clear from the outset that he didn't want it to be anything too grotesque. Like mm-hmm. he really didn't want it to be something that was ongoing an ongoing shocking kind of element that obviously the reveal is it's a it's a sort of a traumatic event that's happened and he yeah. is affected emotionally by what's happened to his face but we didn't want it to be overwhelming so um, from New Zealand I just started testing on some family friends young young <laughs> boys who are of a similar age and just you know sort of freehanding ink ink kind of work to send to you know backwards and forwards with Taika to kind of start getting a feel for scale and placement and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and so we kind of came upon a level that we were both happy with, um, and then I enlisted the help of Jack Furman in Prague to start kind of production of of the scar. Oh, was, was he the person who like made the scar itself? Yeah, that's oh, cool. right. Yeah, he was a, a Prague-based prosthetic artist. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your background. Obviously, mm. you're you're from New Zealand, I correct? Am, and yeah. um, and you worked on the Hobbit movies. Yeah, that's right. Like, what was your your entry point? I, like, I'm I'm fascinated with the whole New Zealand industry because mm. it feels like it's it's such so, such its own thing. It's mm. so different from mm. the way it is it's here true. in Hollywood. It's true. It's very different. Yeah. Uh, so my my journey, um, I started out in television. Mm-hmm. I had a great. I mean, I I, I guess I kind of came into the industry at a good age and a good time and the industry in New Zealand so I kind of worked pretty solidly pretty quickly mm-hmm. um, in New Zealand we do both hair and makeup together and so you kind of end up being exposed to 
everything pretty quickly and yeah. you, you you are expected to be competent in everything so you, so you do both like on a set yeah. you, you don't have a separate yeah. hair person and makeup no. person no i mean on some occasions i think if it's an offshore production coming into new zealand there might be a hair supervisor but but artists are generally expected to do both oh really yeah so yeah. like well i mean uh, and and maybe this is taking a few steps back but mm. like if you're working on a, on a tv show does mm. that mean that like you're assigned specific actors and yeah. you do all their makeup yeah. and all their hair yeah, yeah. Uh, is yeah. is there any uh, like would it be faster to have different people doing? Well, I mean, I think that depends. It's interesting because I have worked with American directors, and they seem to really appreciate the cohesiveness of having one person overseeing both. Yeah, but I can't really speak to that because I haven't worked in the completely separate kind of environment. Interesting. Yeah. But it works well. I mean, you know, like you, you kind of understand and you conceive a character in its entirety and you're responsible for how they interact together. And so it, it works well for us. Uh, so I, I don't usually go into my own my own background, but I did start out actually as a makeup artist mm. and I worked on a bunch of movies in the southeast that nobody's ever heard of in the southeast U.S. <laughs> and I remember sitting in a, uh, in a makeup trailer reading American Cinematographer mm-hmm. and the makeup and hair people being like, why do you care about that? Mm-hmm. And I wonder what you see your relationship is to the cinematography. Like, mm-hmm. you know, my answer at the time was sort of like, well, you know, obviously we're knocking contrast down on people's skin so mm-hmm. that they photograph them even, even if we just want them to look like themselves. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what would you say is often your relationship to the cinematographer or to the cinematography? I guess that sort of goes back to how I see my work and the whole kind of process and that you know we, 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 we're telling a story mm-hmm. and I need to be communicating with the cinematographer to make sure that my work is sitting really comfortably in that story you know it feels authentic it's not kind of distracting yeah it's just really important to make sure that what the cinematographer is seeing is sitting in harmony with the rest of the the visual storytelling on a movie like jojo rabbit did you do like makeup or hair tests yeah yeah and were you working in concert with the cinematographer on those like trying different lighting trying different amounts of makeup yeah can you tell me a little bit about what that was like well um so so taika's character you know, we were looking at... Um, Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Um, he, you know, we were, I, I, I kind of modified his skin tone. You know, I was really conscious of not wanting to do white face with him. So it was quite sensitive for me. I knew that this character was going to be highly scrutinized. And so it was a matter of getting the right levels. And so we tested different kind of skin, t- skin tone levels. Um, what was the aversion to, to doing whiteface? Well, um, I just it didn't feel comfortable. I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable mm-hmm. with it. You know, it's like this character was never meant to be exactly, he wasn't even meant to be a carbon copy of Hitler. Yeah. And so Taika's Māori, you know, it's like he is very obviously not yeah. Hitler. So it's like we were just never trying and so I just felt like it was it was it was just gonna be better for the character if he you know, like we took him in that direction, but we weren't trying to make him Hitlerish. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, Hitlerish. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, it's interesting to talk about how you went about designing it because it does, it feels like a cartoony Hitler mm. or like a mm. Hitler that is mm. not, cartoony is the wrong word, no. but like an imaginary yeah. friend. Well, like, this is exactly ex- what he was, though. He was he was Hitler from Jojo's perspective. Mm. So he was a roughly hewn, kind of somewhat shambolic, um, kind of crude version. Mm-hmm. He had blue eyes because the propaganda imagery all had, you know, Hitler with blue eyes. Um, you know, he had the, the, the dreadful comb over. <laughs> but it was kind of quite raw. Um, 
he had a moustache, a kind of rough, little nasty moustache, but it did, wasn't. Did he grow that moustache? No. No, yeah. <laughs> I don't think Taika really wanted to live with that. You know, it's <laughs> like I think he found it kind of uncomfortable enough at times without having to take it he home. Could just go Charlie Chaplin on his days off. <laughs> yeah. No, we didn't do that to him. We, it was a, it was a nice little false number. <laughs> <laughs> um, Talk, talk about the other uh, makeup design work that goes into it because you're creating mm. like in general the people who live in the in the village that the movie mm. takes place at they're a little malnourished mm. they're mm. war torn mm. like how much involvement did you have in designing kind of the overall look of, of of the people that are peopling this world yeah I mean I had everything to do with that if mm. you know what I mean I mean that, that's my job is the whole kind of hair and makeup. Kind but like, of. what like what were your what was your design mm. aesthetic? What okay, were, so I mean, it's it's toward the end of the war, like you say, people are kind of malnourished. So I mean, that goes back, I think, to the general aesthetic, like hair and makeup aesthetic of the film, and that we really, I mean, Taika wanted it to have a timelessness about it. So we referenced the period, did lots of research, kind of worked out what the rules uh, of the period were. And then went and kind of deconstructed a lot of those rules. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the general aesthetic. We weren't going for exact kind of like really rigid, period, um, accurate kind of looks. And so with the villagers, for example, I mean, yeah, like you say, they, they, it was the end of the war. They were, they, were, they were exhausted. They were broken down. Um, and so hair was not looking perfect. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, softer kind of like less less red lipstick less you know there wasn't that kind of like absolute optimism but then you know the, people were still trying you know that was one thing that Taika was quite specific about is that even though morale was kind of down people were kind of still trying to rally so mm. Scarlett Johansson's character almost didn't feel like she was in the war like mm. she felt like she was living you know the, the life of a rich socialite in Europe at the time you know like going to a Brecht play or something mm. Uh, what went into kind of the des- I mean like working with somebody like Scarlett Johansson obviously what went in what went into the thought process behind how to how to create the look of that mm. character well Taika and Scarlett consulted each other about her look you know mm-hmm. they, they they directly kind of conceived her, her look um, and she brought her own artists with her oh really yeah Chrissy Beveridge and um, Terry Balliel so Chrissy was makeup and Terry was hair so they kind of they 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 constructed her look together and mm. they, I mean they did a beautiful job um, but you know it, it was always sitting in the overall aesthetic of the film of course and, you know there were more kind of polished hairstyles tested to begin with but they they ended up softening her as we have kind of across the film it's like there it is definitely like of the period but it's not strictly you know it's a soft kind of real feel yeah um, but again you know she she was you know she is a putting on a brave face kind of character as well, yeah. you know, um, for her little boy. And, yeah, so there is an element of polish. And, I mean, she's a, an incredibly beautiful woman and, and she shines on screen naturally. Um, it was not like a an overdone makeup at all. Oh, know? no, not at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, there, there's like a general colorfulness about the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And was that something that rippled into your department? Was, were you yeah. using more vibrant tones? Well, I mean, really, I mean, of the period, the red lipstick is, is you know, that, that is very historically correct. Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, very um, strategic use, there is strategic use of red within the film. But otherwise, you know, we were 
fairly kind of neutral palette mm-hmm. because there's so much other beautiful, vibrant color in the film. Yeah, obviously, it's a lot of it's in the production design yeah. and the sets and stuff yeah. like that. But it also in the in the photography yeah. of it and the way it's photographed. So I, I kind of wonder if there was something that was done in camera to kind of increase the vibrance of, of the way people looked. Not that I'm aware of. Well, you would know. <laughs> Let's uh, also just talk about Sam Rockwell a little mm. bit. You know, mm. like that that character who, uh, and again, like a lot, a lot of it is in the script, and a lot of it is in his performance. Mm. But it, but it's like a character who we don't we want to trust, but we mm. don't trust from mm. the very beginning. Mm. Um, but we want to like him, mm. but we're not supposed to like mm. him because he's a Nazi Absolutely. and he's missing an eye. Mm. Talk a little bit about like uh, how you went about kind of creating the the look mm. for him. Well, I guess, you know, there was that observation of the the kind of historically correct military kind of style. Mm-hmm. So, you know, of course there was there was a general silhouette there, but we wanted him to, to be, you know, like to visually be disenchanted and rough around the edges so he was not a tight military man. You know, he has his injury, his eye injury, yeah. um, and his hair is kind of dishevelled and, you know, it's the right silhouette, but it's not perfect um he's i remember s- him unshaven but yeah, i don't that's right. yeah, yeah he had some stubble which you know isn't kind of you know yeah you'd typically expect a military man to, to have be you know clean shaven um and so yeah that all kind of speaks to his his emotional state at the time so you've been working with uh taika since since his first film right that was his second film second so film. his his first film was eagle versus shark oh i haven't seen that one yeah oh, okay yeah so beautiful uh, film so uh what what uh brought you to work with him on on that um well i knew taika socially like we had mutual friends mm-hmm. i knew his producer ainsley and they were looking for someone to join the project and so you know we had some meetings and we got on well and i mean you know we knew each other already mm-hmm. And we, you know, clicked creatively and it kind of went from there. How has uh, the working relationship with him or, or even just how has working on his projects changed as you've worked on his various projects? It's funny. Someone else asked me that. And it's like, I don't know that it's changed that much. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, he his career has like, you know, yeah. you know he's, he's working on huge scale projects. And so... He's, I mean, I, I see his confidence, you know, has, has grown exponentially. I mean, he's always really, he's always been incredibly confident as a director. Mm-hmm. Like, he knows, he's got a really astute eye. He knows, he knows what he wants. Um, but I have, you know, I've seen him grow incredibly um, professionally. But I sort of feel like our relationship hasn't really changed that much. Mm-hmm. We have a similar process, you know, yeah. Cool. Uh, well, before we go, is there any place mm-hmm. online people can uh, see your work? I think IMDb is probably the, the <laughs> one. <laughs> All right. Well, thank yeah. you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks Appreciate for having it. me. It's been lovely talking. We are here with uh, Rob Vincent, the production designer of Jojo Rabbit. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and giving us some time. Such a pleasure to be here. Before we even get into any of any of your specific work, we always talk to we we tend to talk to cinematographers because we're a cinematography podcast, and we talk about how we take a script. You're handed a script; it's a bunch of words. How do you, how do we turn it into? In the case of cinematographers, how do we turn it into lighting and lenses? But you have a totally different, uh, you know, bag of tricks and tools and and whatever. What what is it that you do? Uh, what are your early steps in kind of looking at a script and turning it into the imagery that we're eventually going to see? I guess actually for production design, it's um, first and foremost about looking after the character story. Mm-hmm. And I'm mindful to just pay attention to subtle cues from 
development director about how the characters in the story inhabit the world that we create for them. Mm -hmm. So without even thinking about how we're going to shoot something, I will start developing my own idea of who these characters are and what sort of world are they going to live in. So for me, production design is about uh, creating a kind of reliable stage for for artists to perform on. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing about Taika Waititi's writing, specifically for Jojo Rabbit, is it's so inspirational for production designer because you get a sense of not just the description of the world where the film is set, but you also um, experience the characters. His characters are always so beautifully formed, even in the earliest drafts, that you can you can extract from that uh, a, an environment for them to to be in, and their key nuances activate their their surroundings, and that's where you draw your inspiration. Well, and in, and in this movie, uh, you have a lot of scenes literally in an attic, like in almost a crawl space. And how do you go about making something like that? Uh, cast, crew, whatever, friendly, if you're making that as a practical thing. So it's all very good to have a wonderful idea, but if you can't shoot it, there's no point. So the, the, having said that we start off with mood boards and things is all very good, but the test is in actually the practicality of the, mm-hmm. the shooting environment. So something like Inga's crawl space... Uh, Elsa's crawl space, sorry, in Inga's bedroom was that it needed to be built almost out of Lego so it could be disassembled and reassembled in any number of configurations. Fortunately, I had a very talented uh, Czech-based art department who were willing to take on any of those challenges and make flyaway pieces of, of that set. So that set, because it's a, a cylinder effectively... Really, it's only going to offer you two angles, one at either end of the cylinder. But for Mihai, he wanted to he wanted to capture reflections and mirrors and be the um, piece of set dressing on a shelf in close proximity to our actors. So we essentially made the that entire set piece a, a portal, so every little piece of it could come out and become a camera port for oh wow for, for any <laughs> angle that he needed. And and that also gave that gave Mihai the freedom to compose some really interesting shots, but also gave Taika um, the ability to change his mind if he wanted to pick up some extra stuff in a different angle that maybe Mihai and him hadn't talked about earlier, but perhaps the performance had encouraged. So yeah, it's, you, you need to sort of stick to your guns in relation to design and having a consistent aesthetic but it's always about the camera at the end of the day you know what if the work never makes it to the lens there was no point in having it so uh, let, let me back up a little bit so you talk about like putting together mood boards uh, what kind of things do you put together in a mood board when you're first starting to conceptualize what the look of a film is going to be so if you're thinking about characters in the town that they live in or the house that they inhabit you your first thought for a period film is to think about the decade that we're set and if they're a vivacious sort of character or whether they're shy or whether they're uh, an an aggressive nature that inspires stylistic choices with furnishing and with colourways and even with set design Mm -hmm. 
Captain Klinsendorf's office in Jojo Rabbit was a, a little segue into his private life, which is one where he's quite a charismatic character and he has this sort of secret life where he likes to draw, design his, yeah. his clothing. And that means you can get away with decorating his office in a slightly vivacious kind of <laughs> fashion. Yeah. Um, like when you're doing stuff like that, when you're when you're thinking about that, how how much are you not? How much are you holding back so that it's a surprise when we find out about kind of his his secret life? You, you kind of have to hold back most of the time. I mean, production design is own, is supposed to serve the story, and when it, whenever it tries, whenever it takes itself too seriously or becomes too much of an art superlative kind of conceit it destroys the, the moment mm-hmm. unless it is an art film this is not an art film but it needs a it needs a beautiful backdrop to tell a 10 year old child's backstory so uh, my first motivation is to keep the keep production design honest mm-hmm. and not detract from the narrative um, like when you're when you're doing something like Jojo Rabbit, though, like so much of the movie takes place within the Jojo's character's imagination or is mm-hmm. a projection of his imagination, and obviously the majority of that is just the Hitler character. But I feel like we're kind of going into his world repeatedly throughout it. So mm-hmm. were you thinking about what a child's imagination of what a thing would look like? Because the movie almost feels like. What what it would be like if I was a child remembering yes. this? Yeah, 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 and that, and that was the key to the show, really. I mean, it it all started from JoJo's mother's um, influence. Her character is a kind of um, a stylish, artistic yeah. character, and so their house had to be a nurturing environment that also spoke to uh, Rosie's um, sensibilities, her sort of flavor, her artistic flair. And I guess um, giving it a uh, an Art Deco, a 1930s Art Deco renovation to a, a, an old stone Baroque building in a little village in Germany was a way of encouraging her influence into the design of the interior of Jojo's house. But then within that house, we separate off into characters like um, Inga's room, which is uh, powdery pastel colours, and decorated in a kind of Victorian fashion just to mm-hmm. create a sense of it was a time that was before when we were experiencing it um, and Jojo's bed- own bedroom needed to be a little bit stoic and uh, military style because however the way you cut it it's very hard to um, decorate a child's bedroom with Nazi propaganda without it looking weird so <laughs> so that juxtaposition was quite a tricky one to work out so we would go with a kind of very kind of military style stoic plain 10 year old boys bedroom <laughs> mm. um, well you, and you talked a little bit earlier about like this being more of kind of an old fashioned filmmaking thing where you're kind of walking onto real sets that are fully built and it's not all all green screen not that there's anything obviously wrong with that and you know you've, you've worked on stuff that, that uses a lot of uh, you know VFX kind of driven stuff in the past, but could you could you kind of talk about like how your job changes when you're working in something where a lot of it's going to be 
made or altered in post versus something like this where it feels very grounded and honestly I again having only seen it once I couldn't tell you where the set extensions were or mm. where you where stuff got painted out and replaced later mm. like it all feels like one seamless canvas mm. that's very good that's a, a credit to to the VFX team the movement from from live action 100% in camera to a lot of post VFX work has only the only change has been that the design portion of the job continues into post and there is almost more design influence in a visual effects heavy film than there is in something that's kind of location based mm -hmm. I get uh, I get a great deal of satisfaction from working with concept artists and, and um, art directors and set designers who work through the post-production portion of a visual effects heavy film as well. I mean, it's just as kind of gratifying in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always been so cool to build huge and to stand inside the world that you've created. I mean, there's nothing quite like that. But with these extra tools that we've got these days with uh, visual effects, we can go into character development and we can take the camera to places that would never be able to travel and, and still be involved in the creation of the environments. I mean, I guess a lot of people think that the production design or the, the art department finish once principal photography is done, but the reality is the visual effects component of a film, if it's been made properly, still has the involvement of all of, the, of, of those technicians, the design consideration and the, the art direction and the, um, and the set planning. And uh, you know we're we're a cinematography podcast, so we're always talking to DPs. What what do you think is the most important aspect of your relationship with any cinematographer to to make the film better and to make your working relationship as good as possible? Well, I always work towards um, helping develop character, but the way we cover the film is equally as important. And I guess. For me, I need to find out from the DOP how how grand their vision is, mm -hmm. and whether or not whether or not the art department can keep up with it. And if, for whatever reason, if there's a kind of budget constraint on a set build or uh, there's a time pinch, then there needs to be a really open dialogue between the DOP and the production designer to create solutions for the director that. Um, that no one of those people are, are responsible for being the final voice in that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a collaboration. Making a movie is a, the most collaborative thing you can do. That being said, it's also run a little bit like a military dictatorship in that you've got, you've, <laughs> you have your, your, your leader and then you have your generals and then you have your, your uh, workforce. Mm -hmm. And that has to happen just because it is such an expensive time-keeping uh, process so yeah a relationship with the DOP is a, is a critical one for the success of a movie for a production designer with regard to uh, Jojo Rabbit specifically you know we, we think of the period of World War II uh, often we think of it in black and white but Jojo Rabbit is an extraordinarily colorful film <laughs> and, it, and it kind of has a, a very vibrant palette can you talk about where the palette came from and what the story is and maybe kind of using 
the way you're talking about how it how it's about character like how how does the palette of that reflect character to mm. you i think it's the other way around in this sense because for jojo's house the palette came from jojo's mother rosie mm-hmm. and her effervescent stylist styly artistic portrayal of rosie betzler meant that we started off with a beautiful saturated um colorful onto it interior for her house because mm-hmm. she dresses beautifully she's obviously got good taste she has all the, all the modern uh, art deco furniture and her house is decorated in the fashion of the time and a little bit edgy as well so you know she has nudes painted on the walls and some of the wallpapers hand painted and so she's a pretty trendy person and that being the nurturing space for our main character Jojo um, meant that his ver- his vision of the world was uh, has been influenced by his mother. Mm-hmm. So when he steps out into the world, he sees it through his version of his colourful lens, and it's an optimistic, youthful version of the world, and it's inspired by by memories. So as a child, I think everybody can kind of think about a smell or a colour. The the, the warmth of the sun or something that trigger a memory from your childhood and in a way we wanted Jojo's world to feel like a, feel a little bit like a childhood memory and then to discover the kind of realities of some of the hideousness of being in a grown up world you know that's when we start to suck the colour back out of the scenes and is most of that done practically like with the way you guys design yeah, stuff it's done consciously so we will for the battle sequences we'll take ourselves away from the colourful end of town and we'll shoot somewhere that's a little more s- subdued in the palette and bring emphasis to the khakis and the beiges and greys of war yeah Lord of the Rings is kind of fun The Hobbit was amazing learning, learning journey what we do in the shadows was like this is how you make films i I didn't even realize that films could be made in such a joyous manner how how, like how was uh what we do in the shadows different from from other filmmaking what we do in the shadows was pretty incredible because taika had caught me at a perfect time we'd just finished principal photography on the hobbit what we do in the shadows had no money we were tearing down a giant container wall blue screen at Stone Street Studios and all the all that timber was going to go into the, into the trash and we had no money we had no money to build anything so we um, got our hands on it because some of our construction friends were tearing down the wall and we ended up with the donated 2,000 sheets of plywood all with chroma green on the back yeah. and um, so we uh, f- found a tin shed which was going to be a studio and we built the vampire flat out of the out of all of this recycled uh, plywood, everything from mouldings to floorboards to uh, architraves, everything in the house was made out of this uh, donated product, and that was really exciting because we produced a, a pretty amazing thing out of nothing, and then and Jermaine uh, and Tyka got involved in wallpapering and painting, and they lived in the set for for a while and that's where we had our sort of pre-production get-togethers and they could inhabit the space and the set just naturally turned into a real life place 
and then we used the most uncouth filmmaking methods ever made by <laughs> sort of switching cameras on and leaving them running while while people did ad lib performances and there's so much work to uh, cut together I think they shot some ridiculous number of hours with <laughs> footage I mean uh, is there anything from that working style on a movie that's kind of loose and improvisational like that that ripples through now to something like there, there is and studios are terrified of that kind of approach because you can't quantify it and even even some art directors that I've been working with it's it's a real struggle for people to allow themselves the the opportunity to experience something spontaneous and that is still one of Taika's tools that he employs even if he has to work in a really structured project he will allow a little bit of room to fill a gap and as a production designer I like to support that concept so we will have for every prop that we offer up underneath the table at the back of the room there'll be uh, 20 other ideas and even though Taika might, may have approved of something and, and we get to the day and the, the artist has got the prop or whatever for the first time or they've walked into their room for the first time and for whatever reason if it's not gelling with them or it's not inspirational enough to create a, some dynamic performance there is always an opportunity to offer up a bunch of other solutions and I think you need that flexibility that is the thing that's missing from a lot of modern filmmaking is it's too overplanned. Mm. and I stick to that I mean the best department to be in apart from the art department is the uh, camera department camera department if they've got the right, all the right equipment they can be as kind of fluid and spontaneous as they like because that at the end of the day they get to choose get to choose the rhythm of the show because they're so mobile mm-hmm. you know, and pr- performers are the same they are, they're, they're, they're actors and they need some spontaneity and if you lose the spontaneity you lose the audience you lose the audience you, there's no point I think that's an amazing place to leave off on thank mm-hmm. you very much is there any place people can find your work online if they want to find out more about you I do have a website which uh, I put regular pieces up about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's just my name, ravincentworkshop.com. So check it out, ravincentworkshop.com. Thank you so much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you. All right, so that was our JoJo Rabbit Press Junket Beverly Hills Four Seasons Special. <laughs> I, I can't wait. Uh, did you get selfies with those people? I can't wait to see what you were wearing. We did uh, get selfies, and I uh, I wasn't wearing this shirt, but I was wearing a shirt that was probably a different <laughs> color of this shirt. Nice. Uh, I, I, I don't know where you, you shop for those shirts, but it is definitely part of your uniform, for sure. It is. It is. Uh, wherever I see these shirts, I get them. <laughs> so Three-quarter sleeve, baseball jersey style. Yeah. yeah, which is ironic because I hate sports. I hate all sports, but I just kind of like the way these look. Yeah, you're, you're you're kind of a baseball jersey guy. So. Yeah, but yeah. don't don't have a baseball team. Don't <laughs> like sports. Hey, uh, Ben, we're gonna be back real soon with another episode, and uh, I just want to thank everyone for listening. We really appreciate the community and what uh, you, the listeners, are doing for us, helping to propel us forward. Uh, please share if you didn't go visit Instagram already, and and follow us there but hey and let us know because we talk to mostly cinematographers as the title of the podcast would imply however 
are there other crafts you would like us to speak with? Uh, we did have a request for a colorist recently, and we're working on that too. I, I mean, I know if you. I mean, I know you know a few colorists. We're working on it. We're working right. on it. We, uh, uh, Kay's says he knows a colorist, so we're. Kay's gonna, is a colorist. You know, Kay's says he knows another colorist. Oh, so. Kay's is everything. <laughs> yeah. When I grow up, I want to be Kay's. Yeah, I, I feel like we should thank Kay's, but it, it's a waste. It, it, we're, well, we're, he's it, not going to hear this. He's not going to hear it, so we, we could. He's too busy plotting the future of all cinema. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, we should go ahead and thank Alana Cody, like seriously without whom this episode wouldn't exist she came to my house she picked me up we drove to the four seasons together she sat there she actually asked a few questions of uh the guests and uh drove drove me home basically she, everything a good producer should do and she take, take note aspiring producers this is, this is what you need to do <laughs> and she also prepared uh research for me so that i could uh like I, I, she she sent me an interview with raw vincent and wow some kind of basic uh research and uh, yeah, uh, nobody really cares about how the sausage is made, but Alana works her ass off, and I think people should know how hard she works. I I, uh, I think we should probably stop talking about it because someone will try to hire her away from us, and uh, I don't want to have to pay her I more money. I dare you to do that, no, anyone. No, <laughs> don't, Double don't, dog don't, don't don't say that. It will happen. Someone yeah. will, will will try to steal her. Anyway, so, okay. So and then uh, we should thank our incredible editorial staff, Abby uh, and Ben. Up. Yeah, <laughs> Ben and Abby. Yep. And uh, who, who else? Or where can people find you, Ben? What, what, uh, just go to benrockonline.com. All right. And, you can find... and I'm not going to tell the story again. Okay. Don't tell it again, motorboat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds dirty and it's, it's super... not. Yes, it's it's not. But listen to any other episode if you're still listening right now. And or just can... reach out to me in social media and I'll, I'll explain. <laughs> It'll tell you the story. Uh, and you can find me over here at Hot Rod Cameras. You know, if you ever need to buy gear, Hot Rod Cameras sells gear. And if you say that you listen to the podcast and you ask for me maybe there'll be a little discount for you maybe i'll maybe i can help you out can, wait did i get a discount because i just bought gear from you, you just got a discount you got ha- you got it you got a killer deal on that memory card. I, I literally just uh just so you know i just bought the osmo pocket uh camera the the little pocket gimbal it's awesome it, and i can't wait to use it yeah it, it'll be an excellent all-purpose camera for you all right all right until next time This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.